shows. Wow. This is our special interview episode with nice. a wonderful person, Tamberanda. Oh. But before we get to that, we actually have some uh, some updates on a previous episode we covered um, about uh, who? I don't actually remember. What are we talking about again? Mark David Chapman. Yeah, him! Come on. Nice. John Lennon's killer. <laughs> so we were sent some uh, newspaper clippings by a fan. A big fan. Big fan. Big listener. Big lovely um, fan. Who decided to uh, send us some information from the newspaper titled, John Lennon's killer denied parole for 11th time by oh. New York board. Huzzah. Yeah. Is she playing with the cord? Yeah. Great. Um, I'll just read this to you here. Um, the man who gunned down John Lennon outside his Manhattan apartment in 1980 was denied parole for an 11th time, state of corrections officials said Wednesday. Mark David Chapman was interviewed by a parole board August 19th. Chapman, 65, is serving a 20 years to life sentence at Wendy Correctional Facility east of Buffalo. Chapman shot and killed the former Beatle on the night of December 8th, 1980, hours after Lennon autographed an album for him. He has said previously that he feels more and more shame every year. Good. Yeah. Should I be like a slam poet? Snap. You could, yeah. Nice. Yeah. Um, and we actually have a slightly more recent second update oh. about this. Okay, fine. Yeah. So, um, of course, it's terrible, as always is, coming from the people that we talk about. Yep. Lennon's killer says he sought glory and deserved death penalty. Okay. Yeah. The man who killed John Lennon in 1980 says he was seeking glory and deserved the death penalty. Mark David Chapman made the comments in response to questions last month from a parole board, which denied him for the 11th time. In, as in previous parole he board hearings, the now 65-year-old inmate expressed remorse for gunning down the former Beatle outside the musician's Manhattan apartment building. Lennon was 40 at his death. Quote, I assassinated him because he was very, very, very famous. And that's the only reason. And I was very, 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 very much seeking self-glory. Very selfish, end quote. Chapman said, according to a transcript released by the state Monday after an open records request. Looking back 40 years later, Chapman called his actions, quote, creepy and, quote, despicable. He said that he thinks all the time about the pain he inflicted on Lennon's wife, Yoko Ono, now 87. Yeah, I think it's probably good that he was denied parole because... Um, yeah, no one's going to let him go. After no. That. No, he needs to stay. Yeah. Oh, Lord. Yeah. Well, that's a nice update. Yeah. Wow. I figured that was a little positive uh, spin on the show. Great. We love to hear that the people who deserve it stay behind bars. Wow. And now here's the voice of an angel. All right, so today we are doing a special episode because it is the start of Spooky Month. And to start off Spooky Month, I have, again, a very, very special guest here with us today. The most beautiful lady, the most beautiful, radiant, perfect angel in the entire world. I'm not talking about myself, folks. I'm talking about my beautiful mama, my beautiful mama, Rhonda. And in order to disappoint my mother, I needed to dye my hair purple for this uh for this interview so i'm here with purple hair again the most beautiful angel and we're gonna be talking about the infamous charlie manson 
So before we begin, I have a quick little quote that I think kind of sums up everything I talked about in the part one of this episode. And so this is a quote from journalist Linda Deutsch, and she has been following, uh, well, this this is taken from an article before Charlie passed away, spoilers. Um, she had been following him since 1969. And she said, I think if nothing else, the Manson case will always be a footnote to the 1960s. That people will say, and while in the 60s, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated, Bobby Kennedy was assassinated, hippies were roaming San Francisco, the, the, Vietnam raid, sorry, the Vietnam War was raging, and in Los Angeles on one horrible weekend, a man named Manson ordered his followers to kill all these people. So, with that being said, hi, Mama. Hi. First of all, I love your hair. Oh, Mama, thank you. I do like to disappoint you, so I'm glad that nah, you, that you like it. Oh, you're so sweet. How are you today? I'm doing good. How are you? I'm good. Thank you, Mom. You really are giving me some sweaty balls vibes. You're just like, I. you don't have to be afraid of the microphone. Don't worry about it. How was the chicken pot pie? Oh, Mom, chicken pot pie was fantastic. How are the two and a half brownies you ate? Oh, you had one and a half. I had one and a half. Excuse me. And for the followers out there... <laughs> They had pumpkin in them, so they took out all the fat and calories. <laughs> took out some of the some fat. Some of the fat and calories. I mean, I did I did get this recipe from our lovely friend Rochelle, and uh, I got the double chocolate chunk Ghirardelli mix. So, again, some of the fat and calories. Oh, I'd recommend it. <laughs> oh, well, thanks, Mama. Good brownies. Good brownies. Good special brownies. Your special brownies. Oh, my gosh. Mother. Well, speaking of special brownies, we are going to be talking about drugs a little bit today. Um talking about how uh how drugs probably helped a lot in this case um but what i am really just first of all uh excited to talk about is you and this is a big day this is a big day for anything spooky goes we have never had a guest and can't think of a better guest than you mama well thank you it's kind of like the love boat when they had special guest stars back in the day yeah is yeah. that how you feel i do okay i wish i could wine and dine you and give you a cigar but you don't want any of those things so. yeah. <laughs> okay so a little bit of backstory real quick um mom at any time if i embarrass you you can just tell me to shut up or just like kick me under the table whatever you need to do um my mother is, again, the most perfect little lady in the entire world. She was homecoming queen of 1984, and she is just brilliant and the nicest lady that you could ever meet. But Rhonda has a dark side, and that dark side is, is that for however long I can remember, she has had a fascination with Mr. Charles Manson, and that is why she is our special guest today, because I have some questions, Mom, putting you in the hot seat. And I want to know, I want to know why. So you ready to dive on in? Go for it. Okay. So mom, the Charlie Manson murders, which, you know, he didn't really do. We'll talk about that in a second. Happened in 1969. So you were like two and a half. Well, you were three years. Well, almost three years old. Almost. Okay. So I'm not assuming that you know a lot about the murders that happened when they happened. But can you remember maybe like the first time you were ever introduced to them? Yes. And. I used to spend Saturday nights at Granny and Grumps' house. Okay. And instead of watching Lawrence Welk, I would go see what they had on their bookshelf. And Helter Skelter, the book about Charles Manson and the murders, was one of those books on the shelf. So I started reading it probably at the age of eight. That's safe. That's really safe. That's fine. 1970s in a nutshell, leaving uh, pretty, pretty uh, 
should be censored material just available for eight-year-olds. Okay, so um, would you mind telling us a little bit about this book? Well, sure. So it starts off basically telling about the murders, but in a way that grabs you from page one, talks about the dark night, the hot night, the night where people left their windows open because it was so hot, the night that you could hear the ice rattling in the, the ice, the shaker glasses from down the canyons. And then it just hooks you from from there. And it talks about how the murders happened play by play, how the screams were heard, gunshots were heard, police the following morning showing up after the maid discovers the bodies. Mm. And that goes on to, to talk about the murders the second night as well. And that's when the fear began yeah. in Los Angeles County. Yeah, absolutely. And the book, correct me if I'm wrong, um, was written by Vincent Bugliogli? Buglio? Vincent Bugliosi. Bugliosi, the thank prosecuting you. prosecuting attorney. Okay. So he did have a, a another writer with him, Kurt Gentry. Oh, but okay. This is pretty much the, it, it starts in the uh, third person. Sure. And then then November 17th, 1969. Mm, good date. It uh, starts in the first person. So Vincent Bugliosi is talking about himself, giving us some background as a prosecuting attorney, a um, little family background, and where he was the day that he learned he was going to be assigned to the case. Sure. And do you know um, really anything about his background? Like, why do you think he was assigned to it? Or was he just the person there that was working there at the, at the right time? Or was there a specific reason? No, I, I think he was assigned to it because um, he had already proven what a good prosecutor he was. Sure. He had a, a very long, successful career, even though he was only 35 years old wow. at the time. Okay. That's that's pretty good, especially mm-hmm. for such a high case like this. You bet. And yeah. he, did, he did have a... Um, a co-prosecutor, but he did the bulk of the work because midway through the trials, um, the co-prosecutor was taken off the case due to some, um, I guess it it, it wasn't the Randa. It was, um, it was, it was just that, uh, he, he had spoken to, um, too freely to the reporters. Oh, sure. And uh, they, his his supervisor, the co-attorney's supervisor, said, that's it, you're off the case. And wow. So Bugliosi, even though he had some help uh, prosecuting, was mm-hmm. pretty much the prosecutor. Wow. And that, that makes sense because, um, I mean, of course, we weren't alive during that time, but I can't even imagine how much this just rattled the entire country and the world and how how much the news was involved. So for one of the prosecutors to be maybe speaking to the press when they're not exactly supposed to be, that could definitely be something that they tried to avoid. Mm-hmm. So that's interesting. Okay, so throughout the entire book, um, was there a part that really just resonated with you of like, okay, this is why I am so fascinated in the story? Besides Vincent's writing style, was there something about, was it necessarily what happened or was it the trial? What what really grabbed you? Uh, well, first of all, the the reach that Charles Manson had, the, the ability to uh, get his followers to do what he wanted them to do. Sure. Um, that was fascinating, but I truly like the the courtroom drama, if you will, yeah, because it was that was fascinating. The whole trial process um, went long, went on longer than it should have, okay, because one of the defense attorneys just had some really good stall tactics, mm. um, and so it went on for very, very much longer than than it really should have or could have gone on, yeah. Um, but uh, that's why that's what fascinates me most about it. I do like the trial, sure. 
part of the book and uh, the fact that um, even though um, Bugliosi was prosecuting Manson, um, Manson often asked to talk to him during the trial proceedings because he thought, Manson thought that Bugliosi was brilliant and, Mm. and it was doing a really good job at prosecuting him. And so they were, they were fascinated with each other. They wanted to know more about each other and it turned into a really interesting relationship. Yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. It really is. And sorry, I almost fell off the table. Don't mind me. Um, And I'd actually, if you don't mind, I'd like to follow up with something you just said of of Charlie's um, charisma and his power over his followers. Um, I know that you are someone that has a lot of experience with with mental health and with the brain and, and just how people act. And so in your opinion, how do you think he was able to convince people to murder for him and even follow him. Let's start, let's start with following. How did he create the farm? Sure, sure. So the family was, was born, if you will, by Charlie's ability to pick out people who were vulnerable and needed a role model. Mm-hmm. And then he used many different tactics, sex, drugs, um, needing that, the family lifestyle, um, getting rid of, of inhibitions, um, Knowing, knowing that uh, um, they, he was a leader, and um, even even with children, to yeah. uh, you know, women who had children, to to kind of give up their caregiving roles in that respect, that everybody took care of the children. Sure. So you know, it was a true family sense in that matter, and then he pulled in references from the world mm-hmm. to say this is why my philosophy is right and he used religion and he used the Beatles. Yeah. Which of course is another one of my fanatics. Wait, <laughs> are you a Beatles fan? Huge Beatles fan. Oh my yes, goodness. Huge Beatles fan. And that's one of the reasons that I really like the story too, because he somehow took the music of the Beatles, twisted and turned it yeah. in order to sway his followers that what the Beatles were saying was go out, kill people. Sure. There was a revolution coming and we're going to be the chosen people. Hmm. So do you think that he thought that Paul was specifically talking to him or was it more of like the Beatles were spreading the messages and Charlie was the one who was smart enough to understand what they were saying? I think that Charlie believed that the lyrics of the songs were a private message to him wow. to go out and kill. Hmm. Okay. That's fascinating. And and I know you, you know, uh, quite a lot about Charlie's background, but he was an aspiring musician, correct? And he like got involved with uh, Brian Wilson. Is that correct? He got involved with one of the Beach Boys? Right, right. He got along. He he got involved with the Beach Boys, but he was, he was a a wannabe aspiring musician. He didn't quite have what it took. And um, actually was, it was Dennis Wilson. Dennis, thank you. Yes. And uh, so he he got involved with Dennis Wilson through actually a couple of his um, women followers mm. were by Dennis they huh. were hitchhiking, and the next thing you know, Dennis picked him up a couple times and brought him back home and mm. to his home and and um, you know they they had some food and you know probably had some drinks and probably did some drugs or whatever. But um, next time Dennis came home from a, a gig, there's Charlie in his house. <laughs> But it, it actually turned out to be an interesting friendship, if you will, because all of the girls in the family would cook and clean for, 
for Charlie and Dennis, and they would rap about their own music and do things like that. And finally, um, Dennis was a, was going to be evicted from his home, and uh, not evicted. I'm sorry, his his lease was up. Okay. And instead of throwing Charlie out, he just he left. Dennis left, and he let his his manager kind of get rid of Charlie and the oh, girls. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so there was a little bit of a twist to that because, you know, Charlie was a little miffed that um, Dennis just kind of took off. and Yeah. Yeah. Huh. That's so interesting. First of all, the 60s terrify me. Like, I can't, I can't imagine a time where I'd just be like, oh, hi, do you need a ride home? Come on over. Let's, let's hang out. Like, that just, that is just so fascinating to me. Um, and again, I know that you were pretty young in the 60s but do you do you remember that kind of like I don't want to say culture but do you remember things just being very different when you were growing up let's say in the 70s compared to what they are now of just like you just trusted people more we did I mean you know you could leave your your doors unlocked 24 hours a day Hmm. and you know you walked home from school let yourself in didn't have you know there was really no no concerns once in a while. I mean, you know, there's always, there's always going to be some danger involved in any city in any spot in the world, but even in the the little fort, that's right. But for the most part, you know, we felt safe. Sure. Hmm. Now we didn't do a lot of hitchhiking. That's for sure. Yeah. Mom, did you ever hitchhike? Nope. You never, did you ever pick up a hitchhiker? No, never did. Dad, did you ever hitchhike? Great. My dad did not surprised. Did you ever pick anybody up? Dad, how did you not get murdered? Oh my God! Ooh, what is that? That looks like a think it's a bee. No, no, it's a that's stink a stink bug. bug. Ew! That's all right. Taker's on the case. Take He's it, got get it. it. Justin, could you kill the stink bug, please? I don't. Justin, Are you pausing it? Murder. We're gonna pause real quick bug. to kill a bug. <laughs> All right, we are back from killing a stink bug. Uh, my apologies. Murder. Murder. Just murdered it. Murdered it. I thought your cat, Tiggy, was going to get him, but, you know, he probably would have batted him right in my face. I would have cried. It wouldn't have been good. So this is just much better. So thank you for be- being patient with us, everyone. <laughs> Mom. Okay, so speaking of murder, why not let's let's just jump right in. Let's talk about the murders. So, Mom. Again, we talked about a little bit about the specific song Helter Skelter by The Beatles. Was that a white album? It was, it was all, all the songs pretty much that Charlie Manson was getting his vibes, his message. They're all off from the white album. And Helter Skelter, for people who don't know, has nothing to do with murder. In, what? In, in England, it's pretty much just an amusement, amusement ride, a slide, if you will. Mm, okay. And when, when you get to the bottom, you go back to the top. Over the slide, yep. <laughs> and you turn around and go for a ride. Yeah. And I, I uh, actually listened to an interview uh, with Paul, and I guess from him, he was saying that they just wanted to make the hardest sounding song at the time. And that's why they made the song sound. So especially at that time, it sounds almost like a heavy metal song. It does. Compared to everything else, especially what the Beatles had done. Um, so I think that that's just very interesting and um, do you happen to know if the Beatles got any backlash from from fans saying like, oh, you were involved in the, in the Manson murders whatsoever? Or was it more just like they pushed it off? No, I mean, I, I think um, they had 
had released a statement to say, you know, it, our songs have nothing to do with murder. Yeah. Um, the defense attorneys wanted to call John Lennon <laughs> as a witness, but it never came to fruition. Sure. Um, but uh, that that album in particular, though, like if anybody's ever listened to it, I mean, it's odd. It's yeah. weird. It can be construed or, or look, looked like through your eyes or you know if you're deranged already it, it can look like there's some hidden messages in there as like what revolution number nine with mm-hmm. snippets of of sounds and uh, messages that come you have to listen very closely yeah. um the song piggies that talk about mm-hmm. fork and knives and stabbing yeah. um revolution number one uh which talks about um you know, obviously revolution and, yeah. and uh, um, you know, go and get it done. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's okay to do that and speak for yourself. Um, Blackbird, which is actually about black people that Paul McCartney wrote about after he witnessed some of the civil rights issues in the United States and yeah. some of the separation and segregation that, that uh, black people have had to go through in the 60s. Yeah. So all of those songs, you know, have lyrics and and. Um, had meaning for Charlie Manson, who said, yeah, they're talking to me. They're telling me, you know, mm-hmm. that I need to step it up. They're talking to me specifically. It's almost like delusions of grandeur of just like, this is, this is my calling. Mm-hmm. And again, not a mental health professional, but I think it's very interesting how a person can take that and twist it into being, this is my message. This is what I'm sharing with you. And this is what we're going to do. That's exactly what he did. He took the lyrics. He twisted them. Yeah. He told his followers, this is what the Beatles were saying to me. Mm. Before then, all he ever really talked about is, you know, someday, you know, the stuff's going to come down on the world. And, you know, the black men are going to come up on top. And people are going to be slaughtered in their homes. But until the Beatles album came out, I think, February of 69. Mm. Once that happened, then Charlie's, his whole mission and his followers went from talking about it to actually physically planning for murder. Sure. That's so interesting. And pl- and planting it on, was it specifically the Black Panthers or just Black people in general? Black people in general. He believed that what the Beatles were telling him was that he should go out and kill white people. Mm-hmm. And that the the murders themselves, they would be grotesque and they would be blamed on the black people. And then after Charlie would murder, then murdered white people, then other blacks would come up and just atrociously murder whites until eventually the black people would come to Charlie and say, we don't know what to do now. We've, huh. we've done all this mess. Now we need you to clean it up and we need you as our leader. Interesting. Even though he was the one who started it. That mm-hmm. was his whole plan. Right. His whole plan was that his plan was to hide out in this hidden milk and honey land underground hmm. until the blacks murdered all the whites. Then he would arise from this bottomless pit and crazy. he would then take over the power. This is absolutely crazy. It just reminds me so much of so many different cult um, movements throughout the history. Like this is so much like Jonestown vibes. Mm-hmm. Um, Scientology, all of that is just, it's so very, very interesting. And um, well, okay. So going into this as well, do you think that, I'm wondering in your opinion, do you think his fans or his followers also believe that mission or do you think there was fear involved or like you said do you think it was more of just this is a 
a strong figure. I will do whatever he says. Now, he had some very intelligent followers mm -hmm. that truly believed this is what the Beatles were saying. Sure. And they swallowed that, that, that sermon, that, that advice, that, that, uh, he, they swallowed it. They they yeah. felt that this is truly going to happen. And some of the family members actually spent time like digging in the ground looking for the entrance to this bottomless pit. So they, they truly oh believed that this was this was going to happen. And mm -hmm. the only thing was that Charlie felt that the blacks were gonna do the murders, but when it didn't happen, mm -hmm. then he said, We're going to have to ignite Helter mm -hmm. Skelter. So it initially it wasn't that Charlie was going to do the murders. Yeah. It was the black people were going to do the murders. Oh my goodness. But then Charlie decided it's been too long already. Nothing's sure. happened. I'm going to have to spark this. Wow. All right. So let's talk about that spark. So August 9th and 10th, uh, seven people were killed. That was the five in Sharon Tate's house. And then the two family, the Labiancas. La 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 yeah. Okay. Why Sharon Tate's house? Why was that house on Celio Drive? Why was that house chosen? So Charles Manson used to hang out at that house. Um, mm -hmm. Doris Day's son, Terry Melcher, used to own it. And, you know, another another Hollywood-type person here, yeah. Terry Melcher, got involved with Charlie through Dennis Wilson <laughs> and, you know, listened to Charlie's music and frankly said, I can't use him. He's, yeah. he's not good. Um, and Charlie said that uh, Terry Melcher was, was going to come through with a music deal for him. Terry Melcher said, no, that was never going to happen. But it, it's felt that Charlie had a little bit of a grudge for Terry, even though he knew that Terry did not live in that house anymore. Terry moved out, I think, in November of 68. Okay. Uh, could have been could have been early in 69. Regardless, um, Sharon Tate and her husband moved in, and Charlie knew that Sharon Tate was living there because Charlie used to race dune buggies up and down the hills and knew that Terry had moved. Mm -hmm. So I think in Charlie's mind, you know, what what better to ignite Helter Skelter than with somebody of high profile, like yeah. a movie star. And a beautiful white young woman. Mm -hmm. huh. So what I think is interesting as well is that uh, Charlie wasn't involved in the murders. And he, he physically did not kill people. Um, but again, he convinced his followers to do so. So do you remember who was all involved in those murders? I do, but you have to go back a little bit because Charlie was actually involved in what we would call a dress rehearsal sure. for the murders. So he and the family members would go out random nights, dark of night, 1, 2 a.m. You know, it's when people were sleeping in what they call creepy crawl houses. So they would go through houses while people were asleep, move things, maybe take a few things, you know, just do just be creepy and weird sure. and uh they went they of course never murdered anybody but okay. you know their their whole uh premise was a dress rehearsal for murder sure um, they would all work dark clothing they would all wear buck knives um barefoot you know just just being very sneaky mm. stealthy quiet and so so he he practiced this with with the rest of the family members and they would do anything that he asked. And I remember yeah. once he at reading that he told one of the, the family members, Sadie, mm. I want half a coconut, even if you have to go to Rio de Janeiro to get it. And she walked out of the house and he said, never mind. 
but as a test that they would do she would do do anything whatever you wanted oh my god that's just crazy so yeah charlie did not go along Mm -hmm. on the night of the murders um but he instructed his followers what to do sure god that's crazy okay so okay so the first night august 9th that was the the family of the, the Sharon Tate household. And so she was having a party. Not, not necessarily. Um, Just like a get together. Well, it, um, her friend, Abigail Folger had been staying with her. Okay. Abigail's boyfriend, um, Wojtek Frykowski had been staying with Sharon as well. Roman Polanski was in Europe finishing up a movie. Sharon was, um, a very, very late stage of pregnancy. So, um, took a boat back actually, um, uh, maybe six, seven weeks earlier from England because she couldn't fly due to her advanced sure. pregnancy. And so Roman was staying in England to finish up his movie. And then her old, well, her ex-lover, Jay Sebring, um, who they were just very amicable friends now. Well, uh, he, her hairdresser or something like that too? Um, well, he was a hairdresser, okay. but I don't, I don't know if he was hers. Sure. But they used to date before Sharon met Roman Polanski. Okay. Um, but Jay was over quite a bit often, and he happened to be over this night. So it was not a party. Okay. And wasn't there, like, a younger child, like, outside that they killed on the way in? Is that? Um, he was 18. 18, okay. So there was a caretaker at the residence, and his name was William Gerritsen, and he lived um, through the back alley in a in a small cottage. Mm-hmm. And he would take care of the grounds and the pool and things like that. Okay. And uh, he had invited Stephen Parent over. And Stephen was trying to sell him a clock radio, and it was probably a little bit past midnight, and mm-hmm. um, Gerritsen and Stephen had a few drinks and things like that, and um, William Gerritsen's, you know, wasn't really interested in the clock radio, so Stephen Parent left, and while Stephen was getting ready to leave the residence, he had never even had any contact with Sharon Tate or anybody in the house. Sure. He was just strictly at the cottage. Yeah. And on his way out, he was um, unfortunately stopped by Tex Watson, who was pretty much Charles Manson's right-hand man. Yeah. And then um, two of the girls. Okay. And Tex shot him. Oh, my God. And, um, and even with that, you know, no one in the house was alerted. So it hmm. gives you an idea of, um, you know, some of the, the weird things that can happen in a canyon as uh-huh. far as sounds and things like that. Yeah. And especially too, you know, even if like um, that does happen, I feel like humans try and innately push things off of like, oh, that's, that's nothing. You know, like let's mm-hmm. just carry on with whatever we're doing. Right. And um, yeah, I just wish they could have, could have known what was about to happen. Right. So, okay. So that murder involved, you said Tex Watson, um, Susan Atkins. Susan name, Atkins. Her nickname was Sadie. Patricia Krenwinkel. Her nickname was Katie. Okay. And then Linda Kasabian, who never entered the re- the residence. The really? The reason Linda came along is because she's the only one in the family with a valid driver's license. Interesting. And she had only been with the family for two months. Oh. And she was actually a very sweet, kind person who was just looking for something. Yeah. And that's something she stumbled across was Charles Manson and his family. Mm. Was she still charged? She was indicted. Okay. She was ex she they had flown her from New Hampshire because that's where she ended up after the murders took place. She left the ranch. She went to New Hampshire. 
Um, and she ended up being the star witness for the prosecution because she felt that the murders were really? so bad, so awful, so horrific that she knew she was the one to tell the story. Oh, my God. I have goosebumps. Oh, that's crazy. Okay. All right. Well, okay. So, unfortunately, everything that happened on August 9th happened. We don't need to go over those murders again. Um, but what happened the next night? Why did they decide to do it again? So, in Charles Manson's mind, it had to be bigger, more grandiose. Yeah. Not not just a shock sure. to to everybody, but more of a this is this is real. This is happening, and yeah. we don't know how long this will continue to happen. So he sent out actually two crews, and actually this time he went along. Oh, okay. So same people came along: Tex, Katie, Sadie, and Linda. Hmm. But then Clem came along and um, Leslie okay. Van Houten. Oh, yes. So the, the new crew, the, the second crew, was Tex and Leslie and Katie. And before they could go in the house, Charlie actually went into the house of the LaBiancas and tied them up. Oh. He was very calm. He said, nothing's going to happen. Please remain calm. You'll be fine. And then he came back out to the car and he sent Tex and Katie and Leslie into the house with specific instructions to kill them. Oh my God. And they did. And it was just, do you know if that house is just a random house or did they, did he have any history with them? He had history with house next door, the house oh. next door. They used to go to um, frequently for peyote parties and mm -hmm. things like that. And the, the owner of the house next door was named Harold. So they knew Harold from parties and things okay. like that. Um, so they never knew the La Biancas. They just chose that house. They just chose the house because they knew of the house next door. Oh, my God. And as they were riding around the hills that night before the La Bianca murder, Charlie was actually choosing random houses and thinking, should we do this house? Oh. Should we do that one? And he'd look in the windows. They'd say, no, there's pictures of children in here. Let's let's not do this house. What? But they can kill an eight and a half month pregnant woman. Mm -hmm. That's fine. Oh, my God. That makes me so uncomfortable. Just to know that, like, anybody's house could have been it. Oh, and it could have been anybody in that in that Los Angeles area that night. Sure. It was pretty much a random act. Oh, my God. Well, and that probably was his whole point. It was like, it doesn't matter if you're rich. It doesn't matter if you come from affluence or if you're important to people. This can happen to anybody. Um, and in the book, it describes that that really, that second set of murders was when the fear began really oh it my gosh. changed from shock to fear sure okay so now i'm really putting you in the spot i want to just emphasize the fact that i i have a computer in front of me and mama is just she knows this mom you're just rambling this off and like it's it's brilliant absolutely brilliant you, you're crushing it um really quickly justin i know you don't have a microphone but i can pass this to you if you want you got really uncomfortable when my mom was talking about the creepy crawlies. You want to talk about that at all? No? Okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah, the idea of it is disgusting. Yep. I hate it. I hate it so much. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we're going to put you on the spot even more. So what happened? How did they get caught? So a couple weeks after the murders, there was actually a raid on Spawn Ranch, which where the family lived. Okay. And it was for um, some auto theft. Really? That occurred. And so most of the family were put in jail. 
um, but not for murder. At that point in time, they had not connected mm. that they were suspects for murder sure. or involved in murder. But that is pretty much what stopped the murders. And okay. then f- after the, the raid on Spawn Ranch, the family moved over to Death Valley. Okay. And um, it took until November. These these murders happened in August. Yeah. It took to to November before Sadie, who was involved in the first murder, um, confessed because she was she was actually jailed on a charge. And Sadie started confessing, and it took the prosecutors weeks after Sadie Sadie started talking to then put two and two together. Sure, was it? Do you think she was like proud of it? She was. She was. She oh, was very proud of it. She confessed to two different inmates that she was the one that actually killed Sharon Tate. Oh my god! So it just makes you wonder of like, okay, if she wouldn't have talked, and if they wouldn't have raided the farm for the auto theft, how long would it have taken, and would they have ever put it together? You know, like, or would have would someone have have cracked? Yeah, it makes you wonder. I don't know. Or would have more would more murders have occurred? And that could be too. Oh, I don't like it. I don't like it at all. Okay. Well, so they the police put two and two together. They find out that the Manson family is involved and they get into trial. Okay. So we go now we're in the trial. This is kind of a big question. But it is it's it's no secret that Charlie was put away in jail until he died. Do you think that even though he didn't commit the murders, that was a fair and appropriate sentencing? It was very fair yeah. and very appropriate. And because so many people came to testify about his influence mm-hmm. and the reach that he had to influence others. Sure. Yes, it's it's very appropriate. Okay. Um, Justin and I, mostly Justin, we watch a very, very fascinating show on Netflix called Dark Tourist. And it is um, a New Zealand, Australian, New Zealand uh, journalist who goes around and goes to places of dark tourism. So, for example, they, I didn't know this, but they have Jeffrey Dahmer tours in Milwaukee that you can go through and they will you can see where murders took place. Um, And so for one of the episodes, he interviewed one of Charlie's um, best friends, someone that he didn't know Charlie when the murders occurred. He wasn't part of the Manson family, but just became fascinated with him, started writing him letters and Charlie decided I'm going to write you back. And Charlie ended up leaving almost all of his possessions, which I don't know much you have when you're in jail for almost your whole life. But he left like all of his possessions to this man. And this man just swore. He said Charlie was not a bad person and that rehabilitation can help. And that's definitely a big conversation, especially for, I know for Leslie Van Houten and, and um, uh, one of the other women. Probably Patricia Krenwinkel. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I know there was another woman who. And probably Susan Atkins. Susan Atkins. I think, I think it was Susan. She was like diagnosed with brain or breast cancer and she had asked to be taken out of jail for her last years of life and everyone said no do you think that's fair i do think it's fair even though she was a young woman when this occurred and she was probably 20 or 21 
when, mm-hmm. when she did this, she still did it. Yeah. And uh, she did it in a fashion that was just horrific and yeah. brutal. And the, the time fit the punishment. Yeah. And, and yes, rehabilitation can occur. And I think most all of his followers ended up um, rebuting his, his followings and, and telling people that they, that they um, now are, were remorseful. Mm. Um, but again, her, her time fit the punishment. Yeah. And I think too, um, if you haven't already, if you haven't seen any of the video footage from the trial, I think that the news did a really good job of documenting that time and showing the world how just twisted the family was. Because I remember seeing bits of documentary where the three main women who were involved in the killings would sing as they were going into court and they dressed up almost like baby dolls. Mm-hmm. And, and they laughed and giggled. And, and laughed and giggled, exactly. Sketched, things yeah. like that. Yeah. They thought it was a, a play, if sure. you will, not a trial. Yeah. That's just so... They mocked it. Yeah. So twisted. And so I can understand for people who, you know, maybe there were family members of the, the, the ones that were killed, even if the women are in their 70s or whatever, how are they old they are, looking back and saying, this is how you acted. This is what you did. You don't deserve to be let go. Right. Just what you said. Justice was served. Yeah. That's so interesting. Okay. So at the end of the day, I just want to know one more time, what is it about Charlie Manson, about the entire case that really just makes it stick out for you and what makes it something that I don't want to say you enjoy because again it's not like you're you're not praising him by any means you understand that he's a bad person but what is it about that specific case that just gets you I think it was pretty much the era the the, the end of the 60s uh, everything else that was going on in the world yeah. um, the ability for him to manipulate others to do this and the trial process that was fascinating for me. Sure. Yeah. And no, I'm not a Charles Manson <laughs> fan. Absolutely <laughs> not. I'm more of a Vincent Bugliosi fan. Yes. There we go. Good clarification. So, yeah. The, just the, the brilliance he showed as a prosecutor. Yeah. Um, he really dug deep and, and in his day, you know, cause they had detectives on the case, mm-hmm. uh, but he was a detective too. He, he dug up the information on Helter Skelter. His co-prosecutor wanted to um, use a motive as, as burglary, robbery. And Vincent Bugliosi said, absolutely not. Mm-hmm. It was Helter Skelter. It was Charlie's twisted mind yeah. that was a motive for these murders. And that, that is what's fascinating about this case. Yeah. And I know we talked about like the what ifs, you know, what if they wouldn't have murdered or what if they wouldn't have got caught for the auto theft, but like, what if Vincent wasn't on the case? What if they had someone else or what if the other prosecutor was alone? Just how many things would have gone differently? Yeah, true. Mistrial, hung jury, yeah. all of those. Yeah. And I'm just very glad that things happened that the way that they did and that we're here now knowing that he's gone forever. Most of his followers are gone. And, um, I think that even just, uh, I know all the victims were, everything was awful, but there's almost this, this like fascination with Sharon Tate of just like what could have been. 
And I know, I think even with within 2019 alone, like three movies were made about her. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, where Margot Robbie played her for uh, Quentin Tarantino's movie. And um, I know there's been interviews with uh, Roman Polanski and just so many things happened. But what I think is very fascinating with you saying is that um, I think that there was this fear that was and culminated into the 1960s about like the hippie movement. And I feel like Charlie and his followers just took it and ran with it and scared people and instilled that fear that I think lasted throughout the seventies, eighties, and now even to into today of just people being different. And that's scary. It is. And even some of the, the movements that occurred, you know, to free Manson and, Mm -hmm. you know, to put him on a a pedestal and, and think of him as a martyr, which is, you know, not, it's skewed incredibly poorly. Um, but there are, there are those views out there. Yeah. In my opinion, if you tattoo or carve a Nazi symbol into your forehead, maybe, maybe not the best person you should be idolizing, but that, that's just my opinion. Well, it's a fascinating read. And if anybody wants to read Helter Skelter, I'd yeah. recommend it. Okay, perfect. Do you have any other recommendations for, um, for any other type of Helter Skelter vibes and, or what's your favorite song on the white album? White album, favorite song. <laughs> oh. I actually like Martha, my dear. Do you? Mom, I do. Mom, could you please tell us what type of uh, individual Martha, my dear, was written about? Yeah, she's a dog. Yeah, sure is. <laughs> sure, sure is. Paul's lovely dog. Well, Mom, it was an absolute honor to interview you. And I cannot thank you enough for sharing a little bit of your knowledge. A lot of your knowledge. Who are we kidding? You just, you can't write this stuff, folks. You got to just have a mom who remembers everything. It was my pleasure. Oh. Thank you so much for being here today, Mama. Um, if you out there ever commit a murder, don't don't get in contact with my mom because she'll remember everything. And uh, it it's been a good day. So thank you for being here, purple hair and all. And I really appreciate you, Mama. I appreciate you too. And again, love the purple hair. Oh, bless you. All right, Spookables. Thank you so much. Bye.